and amen. I suppose if I were given the opportunity by someone to take my wife and myself anywhere in the world, it would be a hard decision, but I think one of the places that I would love to visit is Geneva, Switzerland. Not much is going on there these days of any eternal consequence that I know of, but 500 years ago, Geneva was kind of the home base of the Great Reformation. It was the home of Jean Calvin and his school of the martyrs, or the seminary of death, as it was called, where Jean Calvin would train young Frenchmen to preach the word of God, Frenchmen who had escaped Catholic France with their lives to cross over into Geneva, to link up with John Calvin, to be taught the word of God, and then be sent back into France to proclaim the gospel and to die. Today in the old city, there's a lovely park adjacent to the University of Geneva, close to the church where John Calvin preached and taught on a daily basis. It's incredible the schedule that these early reformers kept, teaching the word of God every day, sometimes several times a day. The park there consists, contains a, a lasting memorial to the 16th century Protestant Reformation. The central feature of the monument is a magnificent wall adorned with statues of John Calvin and John Knox and Gillum Farrell and Theodore de Beza, all of whom were key players in the early years of the Reformation. This amazing edifice, of which I have only seen pictures, stands 60 feet tall and about 100 meters long. It's known all around the world simply as the Reformation Wall. Its construction began in 1909 on the 400th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin and took seven years to complete. It's an amazing thing to see. I'd love to see it firsthand. But perhaps the most amazing thing, in fact, in my mind, the most amazing thing, however, about this wall, even more significant than the huge statues of these four reformers, are the words that were chiseled into this great stone wall itself. In great bold letters, it reads, Post Tenebras Lux, which in Latin means, After Darkness, Light. These words capture the whole purpose and goal and result of the Protestant Reformation. As R.C. Sproul notes, the darkness referred to as the eclipse of the gospel that occurred in the late Middle Ages. A gradual darkening of the gospel reached its nadir, its bottommost portion. The light of the New Testament doctrine of justification by faith alone was all but extinguished before the Reformers came. Today, the years previous to the Reformation are commonly known as the Dark Ages, and now you know why. It was a time, says Sproul, when the light of the true gospel was all but snuffed out. But then, by God's grace, through the ministries of faithful, though imperfect men, such as Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and others, the glorious light of the blazing gospel of salvation was restored. And the only reason all of us are here today 
is because of God's grace through those men. I thought of the etching on this great wall this week as I was preparing to preach on this text. Clearly, the apostle was not thinking about the Great Reformation. Obviously, it was 1,500 years coming before um, the wall was ever built, more than that, before the wall was built, but certainly 1,500 years or more after the apostle Paul that the Reformation even began. And so he wasn't thinking about the Reformation. Rather, he was thinking about the lives of all true believers. You see, the influence of the gospel is the same, no matter where it is applied. If it is embraced by a nation, the effect upon that nation is the same as if it is embraced by an entire continent. And the effect upon that continent is the same as if it is embraced by one single soul. After darkness, light. Wherever the gospel is embraced, darkness is shattered by indomitable light. And so in Ephesians 5, 7 through 14, then when Paul is doing his best here to remind us of how important it is to keep the truth in mind, when the light comes, darkness always flees away. And what he is telling us is, if you claim to be a genuine child of God, there'd better be some evidence in your life that the darkness is fleeing away. I see four exhortations for us to consider from this text. First of all, because because we've all been called out as recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in chapter 1. Because of that, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, he says in chapter 4, verse 1. And that means that we are to, number one, we are to flee the absence of light. Flee from the absence of light. Now, I have four points here. This is point one. I was sure I could do all four this morning. There is just no way. We're only going to look at the first two. But this one's significant. I want you to see it in verses 7 and 8. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Who? Who is the them here? It is the people here that he dis- just described to practice immorality as a lifestyle in all of its various forms. Do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. Now, the whole thrust of this passage is, is that if we are going to walk or to live in a manner that is worthy of our calling, then we need to be, according to verse 1 of this chapter, imitators of God, right? We are called to be imitators of God as beloved children. Further, we learn that becoming an imitator of God means that we must walk in love, because that's what he says. Walk in love, chapter uh, 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved, loved you and gave himself up for us. And now he's telling us, not only should we, as imitators of God, be walking in love, but now think of it this way, he says. Walk in love, and here's another helpful way 
to understand how God wants you to live, walk not only in love, but walk in light. Walk in light. And the first step toward walking in light, I suggest, is to flee the darkness. Flee the absence of light. Now, if we're going to flee darkness, we need to know what darkness is. So what does it mean to live in darkness? Well, Paul has just described that kind of life to us in verses 3 through 5. A person who walks in darkness is characterized by immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, foolish talk, coarse jesting, covetousness, and idolatry. Just to name a few, this is not an exhaustive list. And there are characteristics of people who are bound for hell, these are. You know someone who acts like this? Are you acting like this? Is this characteristic of your behavior? These kinds of people go to hell. Now let me just take it aside here and tell you where we're going with this. This week I'm going to cover these two points. Fourth of July when nobody comes to church, I'm covering the next two points, okay? (laughs) Third of July. The following week we're going to look at this. The wrath of God. The wrath of God. You don't want to miss that message. And it may be a couple of messages. It's going to be a fearful thing. But you need to understand what the wrath of God is. We are tempted to read these things and hear the Apostle Paul offering us the cure when we don't even know what the disease is. We don't feel it. We don't feel the weight of it because nobody preaches about hell anymore. Nobody preaches about the wrath of God that is coming upon all who refuse to believe. And we're going to talk about it. This is the kind of people that Paul is talking about. The kind of people who are going there. And the Christian, however, Paul is saying here, should have nothing to do with these kinds of attitudes and behaviors. As we've seen over the past few weeks, they are nothing better than counterfeit pleasures that promise life and lead to death. It doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness to pursue these kinds of things because they kill you. Now, let's take a minute to get a better grasp on the difference between the figurative uses of the words darkness and light in the Bible. I just did a Sunday school class this morning on how to do word studies. Now, we're not going to do a massive word study here. But one of the things you need to learn to do if you're going to study the Bible is take a significant word and trace it out in Scripture to determine what it means. And so we're going to do that just so you understand. Because I think if you don't understand the significance of darkness and light here, you may be thinking it's one thing when it's actually another. And we need to be clear what he's meaning, what Paul is meaning here, between what is darkness and what is light. What's the difference between the two and why is that significant to us, okay? So what is the difference between darkness and light? The Bible speaks figurative of light. And when it does, what does it mean? Well, let me demonstrate for you one of the meanings. And if you're writing this down, you're going to have to write quick because I'm going to give you five references. The first one is Psalm 27.1. And you don't need to write that down because you have that memorized. We quoted it this morning, right? The Lord is my light, there's the word, and what? My salvation. Isaiah 60, verse 19. God is an everlasting light. Isaiah 49, verse 6, the promised Christ is called the light 
of the nations. John 1, 9. Jesus is the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. In John 8, 12. Jesus is the light of the world. Now, we could probably spend the next 20 minutes just listing off texts like that, but that's a good sampling. And so what do we learn from these texts? Well, what we learn is that whatever light is, it has something to do with God. It has something to do with God. Every one of these, the Lord is my light, God is an everlasting light, Christ is the light of the nations, Jesus is the true light which enlightens every man, Jesus is the light of the world. Whatever this light is, it is, it is intricately connected to the person of God. In fact, if you were to look at 1 John 1.5, we read this. John says, this is the message that we heard from him and announced to you that God is what? Light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Now, there's a clue. Whatever light is, that's what God is. Whatever darkness is, there isn't any of that in God. God, light, the opposite of God, and light is darkness in this figurative sense. And so there's a clear contrast. Now, a statement like that is really profound in our study here because do you remember Ephesians 5.1? Let me review with you. The connection between God and light, every verse we've looked at connects God with light. And then Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God. There's a connection. That's helpful. Be imitators of God. Now, what is another way that we can say be imitators of God? Well, Paul says it. You want to be an imitator of God? Here's what you should do. Walk in light. Because God is light. Now, let me see if we can get an even better handle on this. In the Bible, aside from speaking of God himself, the figurative use of the term light speaks of both that which is intellectual and that which is moral. Now, hang on with me here. I know this is a little bit technical, but you've got to see this. Light, and there's other meanings of light, too. Light often refers to life. Light also uh, refers to this uh, energy matter thing that illuminates the room in a physical sense. And so there are other uses of light. But in terms of this kind of use of light in the Bible that connects to what Paul is saying here, there's two uses of it. There's an intellectual and there is a moral side of this light. Now, morally speaking, um, light represents holiness. I'm going to show this to you. And intellectually speaking, Light speaks of truth. And so we have light being a reference to truth and holiness. And so if you want to understand what light is, think in terms of truth and holiness. So whatever Paul is telling us here has something to do with the truth of God and holiness in my life. Now, I want to show you that to you, not just tell you. For instance, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a what? 
lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so the light here is the truth of the word of God, right? That's pretty, pretty straightforward. Job 12, 24 and 25. Job says that God deprives the intelligent of the chiefs of the earth, of the earth's people, and makes them wander in pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. And what's that a reference to? Darkness here is a figure for spiritual ignorance. Ignorance. Not truth. Not embracing the truth, but the opposite of it. Willfully ignoring the truth. Ignorance. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19. These are just samples. We could look at all morning long and look at verses here. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19. But the path of the righteous, or we could say the holy, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until full day. But the way of the wicked is like darkness. So you see the difference between holiness and wickedness. Light, darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. 1 Corinthians 6.14. Now, there's a, here's a verse that you all know very well. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? You see the contrast? Holiness, unholiness. Righteousness, lawlessness. Or what fellowship has what? Light with darkness. And so those are some sample texts to demonstrate that what Paul is talking about here in terms of light and darkness has two components. One is an intellectual component related to truth. You either embrace the truth or you are ignorant, willfully ignorant or ignoring the truth. And on the other hand, if you embrace the light, you are holy. If you reject the light, you are unholy. Is that clear? Class? Trying to help, trying to get a hold of this verse. Now, light and darkness are also used as figures of other things in Scripture, as I said. But in reference to our text this morning, it seems clear that Paul's using the terms in this way. This is what Paul is speaking about in verse 8 when he writes, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. What he means is that before a person comes to Christ, he doesn't say, before you came to Christ, you, a person who had light in himself, walked around in an atmosphere of darkness. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is that you, before you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you didn't just walk in darkness, you were part of darkness. Darkness is not just in you. It was a part of you. It is part of your very makeup. And you, therefore, become part of the very fabric of this immoral and anti-truth or truth-suppressing, right? Romans 1, darkness. You were part of the very fabric itself of this darkness. You were darkness. So you were as an unbeliever. So when Paul speaks of an unbeliever in Romans 1, verse 21, he says, 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They became part of the very fabric, the ignorant, the immoral darkness that plagues all of mankind. The problem with mankind is not something that happens externally. The problem with an immoral person, a problem with a lawbreaker, is not that the atmosphere around them or society or their parents did them wrong. It doesn't have to do with outside influences. That's not where we go to find blame. The blame for the unholy and truth-suppressing atmosphere that we live in is the people who make it up. We are sinners all. We are all part of the very fabric of this present darkness. It is not outside of us. It is us. We have met the enemy and he is us. We are all sold into sin. I was reading 1 Kings this week talking about Ahab. The Lord was talking about how wicked he was. And a phrase jumped out at me that I spent some time pondering. It said, Ahab sold himself to, and then named the sin. He sold himself. He's buying up the pleasures of sin. And at what cost? At the cost of his soul. That's what it means to live in darkness. Foolish heart of darkness. Paul is saying, but if you are in Christ, if you have been born again, if you have been raised up with Christ, Paul says, Colossians 1.13, you have been rescued from the domain of what? Darkness and transferred out of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. The kingdom of light. You've been transferred from darkness to light. The storehouse of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That's where you live. Now, why is this important? It's important because Paul is warning us of a very significant thing. Paul warns us a couple of verses back in verse 6. He says this, sound like a warning to you? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Sound like a warning? The danger here is that there are people out there who will tell you that Christians have freedom to enjoy the pleasures of sin just like the unbeliever does. There are people out there who will tell you it doesn't matter how you live. After all, we live under grace, right? We're not legalists. After all, God forgives all of your sin, past, present, and future, right? We get to do what we want. We're forgiven. And besides that, we've all been taught once saved, always saved. No problem. No danger here. Live for whatever pleasures you find. 
Paul says that's deceitful, empty words. They're calling you back to the broad road that leads to destruction. Be warned. Be warned. You say, well, don't we believe in once saved, always saved? No. What we believe is if saved, always saved. Don't put your hope in the sticker that you signed on the back of your Bible. You say, well, I made a decision. Who cares about your decision? Did the Holy Spirit do anything to your heart? Did the Holy Spirit place on your heart, so to speak, the words, after darkness, light? You are now light in the Lord. Live as a child of the light. And is the Holy Spirit empowering you to live that kind of life? Not perfectly, not perfectly, but are you progressing in holiness? Are you, is your little light shining brighter and brighter? Can you look back over the past year and say, you know what? A year ago, my light wasn't as bright. I was kind of dull. I was a little bit more dim. And I'm still not a million candle spotlight or anything. But I'm, I got a few more candle power than I had a year ago. That's grace. It's all of grace. And you know what? If the Holy Spirit is living in you, you will see a pattern of growing. The power of your little light is going to shine more and more and more. And you're going to look back and somebody will say, how would you become such a strong Christian? And you'll say, I don't know. I guess it was just grace. And you will be technically and practically absolutely right. It's all grace. But Paul's giving a warning here. Because if you buy into this deception, you could be deceived into thinking that you're a child of God when you're not. That's why he says, do not be partakers with them. Because they will incur the wrath of God. That's why this is important. There are people who will teach you that if you prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, made a public profession in the waters of baptism, and you understand the doctrine of once saved, always saved, and that's all you need to worry about. Paul's saying, don't let yourself be deceived by such teaching. People who walk in darkness, people who rebel against the clear teaching of God's word and indulge in the temporary pleasures of immoral living, people like that go to hell. And so if you've been born again and raised up with Christ, flee the darkness. Flee from that old life. Paul told Timothy, he called him man of God and told him to pursue the word of God and to flee Youthful lust. Flee the darkness, Timothy. Flee. It's a part of your spiritual growth. It's a part of becoming all that Christ is in you. Flee as you pursue. It is a both end. It is a embracing and it is a repenting. Or an easier way to say it is, It's living a life of repentance and faith. 
It's turning away from the darkness and turning in trust to the light of God's glorious truth. So Paul says, don't allow yourself to be deceived. If you've been born again, flee the darkness. Flee from any behavior or attitude of the heart that is characterized by the absence of spiritual light. That is the absence of true holiness or biblical truth. And the two always go together. And so the first exhortation I see here is flee the absence of light. Anything in your life that lacks or fails the test of, does it lead me to holiness? And is it coming from truth? Is it source truth from the word? If the answer to those questions is no, or the answer to just one of them is no, then get out of town. Flee. Flee. And don't worry about what anybody else says. I love Pilgrim's Progress. I never put that in my notes. But when I'm up here, I think about Pilgrim. Remember, he stuffs his fingers in his ears when he's leaving the city of destruction where he lives. And everybody come running after him and, and saying, stay, stay. What are you doing? Where are you going? Why are you running? You're mad. Stay. Your wife, your children are here. And he puts his fingers in his ears and he runs as he recites in his mind the words of the book, flee, flee, flee. It's the only way to the celestial city. You've got to leave the city of destruction behind and whatever is there contained. And so that's the first exhortation. But there's a second exhortation here. Not only must we flee the absence of light, we must also, number two, display the spectrum of light. Display the spectrum of light. Light, again, being the truth and holiness. The truth of the word of God and holy living. Now let's see this. Verses 8 through 10. For you were formerly darkness. You were part of the fabric of of what we're talking about here in terms of this darkness that covers the whole face of the earth, that plagues all of humanity. You used to be darkness, but now you are light. And notice, in the Lord, in Christ. Remember our study on in Christ throughout Ephesians? That's what it means that you're a Christian. You are in Christ. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Verse 9. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, and I love this verse, verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul is saying we all used to be part of the very fabric of spiritual darkness. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. To all who are his true disciples, he says this, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Is there any holiness in the world? Is there any truth in the world? You are it. You are it. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. Implication? That's what I've done to you. I've made you a city on a hill. I made you a lamp on top of the lampstand, and I put you right there, church, Christian. 
but on a lampstand, and it gives or displays light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see. Notice the, different, notice the contrast here or, or, or the connection here. Let your light, figurative, right? So shine before men that they may see your what? Good works, practical. What is light? It is your holiness. It's your standing on the truth. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's just another way of saying, walk as children of the light. Walk around this dark world as a shining beacon's of the glory of God's truth and holiness. This is what a Christian does. This is what a Christian is. Primarily speaking, the purpose for God leaving you here on earth and not whisking you away the moment you receive the Lord Jesus is this right here. You ever ask yourself, why did he leave you here? Why not just rapture me? That would have been great. And of course, we'd have a lot more people coming to the kingdom or scared away from it if people started disappearing every time someone received the gospel. But he leaves us here. Why? He has a role for us. He has a job for us to do. We are to be beacons of two things, truth and holiness. Not homeschooling. That's not it. Not education. Not some kind of diet plan. That's not why we're here. Not a political agenda. That's not why he left us here. You are to be a beacon of truth and holiness. And anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. Anybody can be godly. Anybody who possesses the Holy Spirit in their life and belongs to Jesus by grace, through faith, can fulfill their mission, their purpose for being on the earth. Your purpose, it doesn't matter whether you are from a country that is sophisticated and wealthy like ours in America, with all the technology and all the great education, our minimal education standards are, are high scholarship compared to most of the world. And the thought that someone might grow up in our church or in one of our families and not be able to read is unthinkable. And yet, you can be godly and you can fulfill God's purpose in your life and not even be able to read. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't even have to know how to use all the tools of scholarship, some of which I showed you in Sunday school. You don't have to know any of that stuff. You need Jesus and you need an understanding of his truth. You know what? There was an awful lot of years in church history where nobody had a copy of the Bible. And yet the church grew. It expanded. It covered the face of the earth. And it fulfilled its role being a city on a hill, a light like a candlestick shining out in the darkness in two ways pointing people to the truth of the Word of God and demonstrating the holiness of God in their life. 
I say that because a lot of people, when they hear stuff like this, they think, man, I've never been to seminary. I've never been to Bible school. I never even graduated from high school. What, what good can I do in the world? Answer, you can do far better than an awful lot of scholars. You can do far better, better at magnifying the glory of God than an awful lot of people who are so stuck on their scholarship and stuck on their name and stuck on the little sheepskins framed on their wall behind their desk. Your light may be infinitely brighter than theirs. You just keep your focus on the simplicity and purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know where I am in my notes. <laughs> Let's just jump in here. Paul doesn't assume here that we understand what he's talking about when he uses the analogy of light, and so he takes, as it were, a prism. You know what that is? A little glass triangle. It can be any length. He takes, as it were, a prism, and he sets it up kind of on the windowsill where the light is coming in, and he says, okay, let's, let's get a little more specific here. We've seen the term light, and we brought that down to two things, truth and holiness. Now let's put the spectrum up to that and break it down even more and kind of see the colors that are here that make up this light. And that's what he does here. He takes a prism, he sets it on the windowsill where the shaft of light is blazing in from the sun of God's glory so that we can see the spectrum of light. He wants us to see the various shades of light that he expects our lives to shine forth. And here they are, namely, goodness, righteousness, and truth. In fact, if I remember correctly, in the Greek it says, all goodness, all righteousness, all truth. And that's what he says, is it not? For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light. And here's a little parenthetical statement. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. He said, this is what I'm talking about. Don't get confused by the figures of speech, light, darkness. You're not left to try to figure that out for yourself. Just look at the text. What is goodness? Well, there are several words in the Greek translated good. This one, however, refers to moral excellence. Moral excellence. It's a kind of goodness expressed in sacrificial service for other people. Even people who are undeserving of such service because they are scoundrels or because they have offended you or hurt you in some way. Goodness. Paul told the believers in Thessalonica to always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. It's this kind of goodness. It's the same kind of goodness Paul refers to in Galatians 5 when he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, which consists of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. The fruit of light, which is kind of a, a combination of breaking apart of analogies and sticking them kind of together. You know, he... He uses fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Fruit. Something that 
The idea here is something that grows from within, not something that is hung on from without. It's fruit. And we are left with the question when we hear Paul saying, you want to know what I'm talking about? This is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you living a life of goodness, sacrificial goodness. And we are left to ask ourselves, do the people who know us think of us as people who are morally excellent? Or are we just one of the boys? We're just one of the girlfriends hanging out, talking about Oprah and whatever else women talk about. I don't know. One who sacrifices for others just for the sake of doing them good because it gives us joy to please the Lord. That's part of the spectrum of spiritual light that Paul wants us to shine forth. Goodness. The second is righteousness. And one of the best texts for unpacking the meaning of righteousness here in Scripture we memorized just a few weeks ago, Romans 6, 11 through 13. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as in, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of what? Righteousness. Not unrighteousness, but righteousness to God. What does that mean? It means we don't say to sin, sin, here are my hands. Do with them as you please. We don't present them to sin, Paul says. Stop presenting your members to sin. Here's my eyes. Here's my imagination, sin. Do with it whatever you please. But rather... That's darkness. Rather, now that you are children of light, now you present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Lord, here's my imagination. Use it for your glory. Here's my hands, Lord. Here's my feet. Here's my mouth. Use it for your glory and your glory alone. Protect me from every evil deed that I could do with these members of mine for darkness. I give them to you as instruments of Righteousness. Because we've received the righteousness of Christ on our behalf in a legal, forensic sense, we are now called to live in righteousness. And that means we don't cut corners on our taxes. We don't try to find the best way to cheat the company or the government or the customer of the money that they are due or the services or the products. We don't cheat our employer by being lazy or half-hearted in the business that they are paying us to do. We don't lie about the, the competition just so we can get ahead or gossip about someone so that people would think less of them and more of us. That's unrighteousness. We are to live righteously. We are to obey the laws of our land and treat all people the way we would have them treat us. By doing so, we shine forth the light of the glory of God's holiness and the truth of God's word in the midst of a morally dark world. Goodness. Righteousness. And the third one is closely related to it. Truth. Truth here has to do with honesty. Trustworthiness. Integrity. 
The opposite is when a person is hypocritical, deceptive, conniving. He doesn't care one whit about saying what's true or doing what's right. His only concern is coming out on top, even if he has to fudge on the truth to get there. No, that's not how a believer lives. You used to be darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Tell the truth. Be honest. Live righteously. Make sacrifices for other people. This is the way Christians are supposed to live. This is how we should be known in the community. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. They're all rare qualities in people. When people who live in the world as part of the very fabric of spiritual darkness, when they meet a person who shines this kind of light, they're not sure what to make of it. They know it's different. It's unusual. Believe me, people take notice when they see someone make personal sacrifices for other people with no thought of personal gain for themselves. Or when they see someone who could easily cut a corner to favor themselves but chooses to do the right thing to their own hurt instead, they notice that. They notice it. Or when they hear someone speak the truth, even to their own hurt, simply because it's the right thing to do, they notice it. Or someone who corrects a lie they had previously spoken. I know some, some frightening stories of men who had lied, and then under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they went back, and they had to confess to their employer. And one brother, and many of you have heard this story, because he tells it all around the country, working for uh, a defense organization, and he lied on his security clearance forms. And the Holy Spirit convicted him of, of it years later, and he went back. And he told his employer, I lied on that form. It was just a small thing. He wasn't an international spy or anything. You know, he, he said he had five kids instead of four or something. I don't remember. It was pretty insignificant. But he thought he could get an edge if he lied about this little thing. And, man, lights went off everywhere. And they moved his desk out into the hall, away from all the top secret stuff. And it was frightening for him. But you know what? The Lord raised him up because of his commitment to taking the risk to go back and correct the wrong and to be honest and to live before people according to the truth in all holiness. That's light. And nobody can mistake that. That's the way we are called to live. For the glory of God and our own joy, we are to display this spectrum of light. The unregenerate world can't miss it. And by the way, notice how after Paul sets the prism, sets up the prism, so to speak, to show us the spectrum of light, he then pulls all the shades back together into one shaft, one phrase that summarizes all three shades of spiritual light, namely verse 10. Look at this. You want to know what we're talking about here? This is it, verse 10. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You want one sentence to kind of put over your life. This is my motive. This is the basis for which, upon which I make every decision. I'm just trying to do what pleases 
the Lord. That's my delight. That's my goal. It's my life. It's the whole thing. It's the modus operandi of the whole Christian life. The one thing that sets us apart from the world, the greatest change that has taken place in our lives is this. That in the past, in the past, we lived to please ourselves. Now, by God's grace, we live to please Him. We live to please Him. The word here for trying to learn, it's one Greek word, means to test. To test. It's the same word found in Romans 12, too. Familiar passage with you. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may... What's the next word? Prove. So that you may prove that... Uh, what the will of the Lord is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It's the same word. Prove. Trying to learn or to prove means to test. This is a term that used to be used in applying uh, a test to precious metals. If you had a hunk of metal and somebody came to you and said, uh, you're a guy who works with metal. I don't know what the title would be. Uh, Tell me what kind of metal this is, or tell me the quality of this metal. And what they would do is they would take different kinds of acid, and they would drop it on that metal. And depending on how the metal responded to the acid, they would be able to determine the quality of that metal. This is the same thing that Paul is talking about. It is literally the acid test of the quality of that metal. You see, the primary characteristic that differentiates between a true believer and a moral unbeliever is the motive of the heart. You realize that? There are a lot of moral unbelievers around us, but there's a significant difference between them and the true believer. You know what it is? The motive of their heart. I'm not being moral to serve myself. I'm being moral because the greatest delight of my life is to live in such a way that pleases my Lord. It's the test. An unbeliever may be able to hang upon his life various ornaments of morality, but for the believer, holy living grows from the redeemed affections of the heart. He produces holiness because his desires are to please the Lord in everything. They're not ornaments hung on his tree. They are fruit that has been born from within. In every circumstance of life, Paul is saying, This person weighs his decisions or he tests his decisions or the value of one choice over another by this acid test. Will it please the Lord? Will it please the Lord? He tests or proves every option. He says, well, if I go this way, I might make more money. On the other hand, I might might harm my testimony. I might make more money if I go this way, but it's pretty likely that there's a chance I could harm my testimony if I make this choice. Or I could make this choice and not make nearly as much money, but everybody would know whose God I serve. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to please the Lord. That's the difference. That's the acid test. 
Every decision, we pour the acid of God's word on it and we say, God, show me which, which one is of greater quality. Which one pleases you? And that is what I will do. That's all that Paul means. He's talking about us finding out where real profit lies, where real joy can be found. And so Paul is speaking of trying to learn what pleases the Lord. And this should be the dominant characteristic of our lives, that even in the most basic decisions about eating and drinking, having a little trouble with too much food consumption, looking at maybe starting a diet, that's what it comes down to, folks. Okay, do I take another portion? Apply the acid test. Will it please the Lord? I mean, that's what he means, right? In everything, even in your eating, in whatever you eat or whatever you drink, do all to the glory of God. Apply the acid test. Will it please the Lord or will it just please my belly? You make a choice about entertainment, will it please the Lord or will it just stimulate my mind, my affections, my heart. Will it be, as we looked at earlier in Ephesians, the lust of the mind? Or will it be something that really pleases the Lord? In everything, we are trying to learn, trying to learn. This is what growth is. It's what sanctification is. The more we grow in Christ, the better we get at applying the test to everything. Trying to learn what pleases the Lord. It's the dominant characteristic of our lives, even in the most basic decisions. Spending versus saving, speaking or holding our tongue, resting or working, that all of it would be governed by whether or not we believe it would please the Lord. It's what it means to walk as children of the light. It's what it means to walk as children of light. It's what it means to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It means you live in holiness by walking in truth. That's light. Christian life is not just a matter of what we say we believe. It's also a matter of how we live. Are we living as children of light? Or are there no discernible differences between our lives and the lives of our unbelieving friends around us? These are the marks of a true Christian, beloved. These are the marks of a true believer. The Bible knows nothing of being half dark and half light. You can't be half in darkness and half in light. The true child of God hates sin, the sin of his old life, and he longs for a heart to live the life of goodness and righteousness and truth for the glory of God and for his own joy. And so I ask you, If you were to die and all of your friends would gather around and we were to give them three or four options of what to put on your tombstone, what do you think they might choose? Here was a wealthy man. Here was a businessman extraordinaire. Here was a creative woman. Or might they, if we gave them an option, just put on that stone after Darkness, light. Do they see you as the light of truth? Do they see you as the light of holiness? Or do they see you just as one of the guys 
one of the girls. In every circumstance, the true believer governs his desires by the question, will it please the heart of his Lord? Well, I've only covered two of the four exhortations in this text, and we'll have to come back next week to hear the rest. And I hope you'll come.